This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Over the course of his career, Sebastian Salazar has worn many hats in American soccer. He started as a young fan of the brand new DC United, and eventually he wound up working for the franchise. Other stops along the way included local regional sports networks where he quickly made a name for himself as the soccer guy in the room. And I put soccer guy in air quotes, and you'll hear Sebastian explain that during this episode. These days, he is at ESPN what many would say is the pinnacle of a sports media career, where he continues to wear many hats. But most importantly, he now has the freedom and the backing to cover some of the most important topics in American soccer in two languages. In this episode, Sebi will explain his long-term relationship with MLS and DC United, the difference between the burbs and other soccer cultures in America, what happens when someone doesn't like what you say, and calls your boss, and he will explain what fans really need to know about American soccer media. At the very end of this episode, he goes on a 10-minute rant, and I call him out for it at the very end, too, telling him his answer was 10 minutes, but it's 10 minutes that you absolutely need to hear, and it's a good, uh, heartfelt explanation from somebody that does the day-to-day grind of the American soccer media, and that insight, I believe, is incredibly valuable. And there are little bits and pieces throughout this episode that are also incredibly valuable. So I hope that you enjoy it. Uh, This episode, like all of the episodes of the 343 podcast, is brought to you by 343coaching.com. Now that is where you can see what went into the making of some of the next stars uh, of American soccer. And some of the names like Ulianes, Alex Mendez, Efra Alvarez, uh, have very similar stories to Jonathan Gonzalez, which you'll hear Sebi refer to quite a bit in this episode. And it's kind of what uh, a lot of people that are listening to this podcast might know. Um, th- that's what you might know Sebastian for, is covering the Mexican-American relationship uh, with United States soccer and the players that have gone back and forth and, and kind of teeter-tottered. Um, Efra Alvarez being, you know, one that is now playing with Mexico. But what went into the making of that player is more importantly what I want to get to. So you can see the real training footage, the real game footage. You get all access to what went into the making of some of the most special players that this country has in the pipeline. So if you want access to that, you can visit 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 343, the word coaching, all spelled out, dot com. All right. Uh, let's get into today's episode. I think that you guys are going to enjoy this one. So here is Sebastian Salazar. Uh, all right, it's recording. Um, yeah, I guess uh, just first off, thank you for for being gracious with your time on this Wednesday morning. Um, maybe uh, since I didn't do a sound check, maybe I can just do it right now when you when when you start talking. But can can you maybe introduce yourself and and tell people kind of what you do because you do 
you wear a lot of hats, man. I, I can't even keep up with, with everything that, that some of you guys do. So if you can kind of just give, give like the overall, I guess, synopsis of, of, uh, of who you are and what you do. Yep. Sebastian Salazar, host, reporter, a punching bag on FC Extra Time. <laughs> I do a little bit of everything, man. I do a little bit of everything. You're right. Uh, for ESPN, it's been a, an amazing two years since I got to the company. I've really enjoyed it. So um, I, you're right. I do wear a lot of hats. Sometimes I don't even know which hat I'm wearing on a given day. And, uh, and that can be challenging, but it's exciting too. You know, I think, I think some people in this industry kind of do the same thing every day. And, and that can let you get really, really good at one thing. But I think sometimes that can also get a little bit boring as well. So, you know, I don't mind the fact that at least for right now, I'm doing a lot of different things uh, and covering a lot of different aspects of soccer. And even every once in a while doing some things kind of beyond the soccer world. How did you get to this place where you where you wear all of these different hats? Like it, it you kind of mentioned just a second ago that when you do one thing every day, you get pretty good at it. And it takes a lot of practice to get good at, at a lot of the jobs that you do. And that's why a lot of people probably don't wear as many hats as, as you do. So how, how did you get to the point where, where you have all these, these jobs under the ESPN umbrella and beyond? Yeah, John, you know, honestly, I think just my work experience at my previous jobs kind of leading up to ESPN, um, which was about a decade's worth of work within the, the television sports industry allowed me to pick up a lot of skill sets. And yet each job was somewhat different. I started working at like networks, very small network, small market network affiliates covering all sports. And in those settings, when you're covering local high school teams, um, maybe I wasn't covering as much soccer, but the interview skills were being sharpened, the story finding and storytelling skills were being sharpened. Uh, and so I started to pick that up there. From that world, I went into maybe a little bit more digital media. I started working at a regional sports network and in, in their on their kind of website team. And so I kind of started to understand, uh, you know, sports on the web to, to, to really oversimplify it and, and kind of those conversations and, and how that happens. Uh, and then from there, I went kind of back onto the all TV regional sports network full time on air. And that's really when I was able to focus all that I'd learned for those like first maybe five years, six years in the industry on into soccer. And that's when I got to Houston and, and the CSN, the Comcast Sportsnet um, down in Houston, got to cover the Dynamo for a couple of years as everybody else at the station was covering the Texans and the Astros and all that, I was allowed to cover the Dynamo with much of the same resources, which was really a first. And we were allowed to cover an MLS team as though it was an NFL, NBA, um, NHL team. And, and that was a great experience. Then came back to Washington, got to do a similar role that I'd been doing in Houston. Um, but working kind of for the network, which is a, a broadcast partner of the team. And so you kind of start to understand the team's relationship with the network and some of that internal stuff. You can't forget, I also very briefly worked at DC United for seven months in 2012 before the opportunity in Houston kind of dropped out of the sky. And so I got to see the, the inner workings of the sausage factory. Literally, I got to see the inside <laughs> of, of the club that I'd grown up loving. Uh, and I got to have conversations with people there. And so all through that time, uh, I was kind of picking up little bits of either skills 
for the industry or knowledge of soccer in the United States and the business of soccer in the United States, something that I've, I've always tracked and followed and in some ways a consumer been a part of. But then I got to kind of get the inside of it. And so all of that perfectly kind of combined. I think when I made the jump to ESPN, I was looking to get out of the regional sports network where I was covering everything but soccer. And I kind of needed to get back to soccer and the opportunity to do it through ESPN really was a, a perfect confluence of events. And so when I arrived here at ESPN, I feel like I was really uniquely positioned to be able to do a lot of different roles. And you throw in the fact that I'm bilingual and you kind of double those roles. And it's, it's really been, I have to say, uh, a match made in heaven. I, the fact that ESPN offers me so many different ways to cover um, the, the types of soccer that American consumers are interested in is awesome. Because uh, it's all the same stuff that I'm consuming as a kind of generic American soccer fan, whatever the hell that is. <laughs> I, I'm watching all that stuff, too. And, and now I get to to talk about it. Yeah, one of the things I, I wanted to make sure that I did was compliment you because you you do it in a way that I I believe is authentic. Like you you know you watch some of the broadcasts and you're like, you know, what are these jokers doing today? Like it, it kind of just makes you shake your head and like, is this really what American soccer is about? And then you and then you watch some shows like a lot of times the ones that you're on, and you're like, okay, well you know I can see him being kind of playful with the with the other hosts and and. And then you go into like a like a little bit of analysis, and then you can see like, oh wow, like that was genuine and, and, and authentic, and there was some substance there. It wasn't just like a gimmick, and so that's why I've always kind of gravitated towards, or or and and even more so recently, probably within the last year, uh, more more of your work than I do other people's. And so I wanted to make sure that I complimented you on on that, and and that I that I noticed the the authenticity of of your work, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. In fact, I think it, in some ways, like it's the best compliment you can pay somebody that does what we do because it is a show, right? And, and you're putting on a show. So it is difficult sometimes for that to, to look genuine because it, it could be viewed as a, as a performance. I think the reality for me and something that I've taken from others, like this is not um, anything that's new to me. Uh, there's a guy named Glenn Brenner, who was a famous sports anchor in Washington, D.C. And I don't know if the guy ever used a teleprompter. You know, it was all just like, hey, I'm here. <laughs> I'm excited to be doing what I'm doing. I'm having a good time. And and it's amazing. And and I grew up watching that and, and thinking that that was cool. So um, I try to be who I am off camera as much as possible, as much as possible, dropping out some of the profanity and some of the other stuff. Uh, on camera because I think I just that's who I am I, I, I don't really want to be somebody else uh, on camera maybe I'm a slightly more buttoned up or toned down version of who I am but I, I think um, if you really want to connect with people you you got to be who you are and and I think I'm lucky here at ESPN there's a lot of other folks in our stable of you know I'm saying this in air quotes because I hate the word talent who are the same way we, we, we are up there and, and we really enjoy the hell out of what we're doing. We, for the most part, enjoy each other, except we want to strangle each other. And, <laughs> and, and that, that atmosphere creates for, I think, uh, a more authentic product. And, and I, 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 I hope that's what the viewer gets. And, and I'm fulfilled to hear that, that you take that away from our shows. That's, that's what we're going for. I want to get to the kind of the root of the authenticity. and. 
uh, when you when you were telling a little bit about your career path, you mentioned a seven month stint at DC United. You you kind of dropped the hint that you grew up in the DC area, and one of the things that you've expressed very strong uh, opinions about uh, is DC United and, and you know the way that they handle business and, and things like that. And so that's you know my my ears kind of perk up whenever I hear you start to talk about them because I realize that there's something there. So can can you maybe describe your relationship with with DC United as a kid, you know, growing up in the Washington area and 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 how that relationship kind of morphed into something else as you as you continue to to grow? Definitely. So uh, I was, you know, born in the 80s uh, and and kind of came of age in late 80s early 90s and we did not have real professional soccer. Um, but I grew up in a household that was soccer first. It was, we were always watching Univision and the Mexican league games. We were always playing it in the backyard. My mother's Mexican. My dad's from Western New York and, and he was of a generation where they didn't have soccer, but you know, <laughs> uh, if you, <laughs> I'll say it this way, if you marry a Mexican woman, you're going to do what she wants you to do. So my dad is now a huge <laughs> soccer fan, you know, it's his whole life too. And so it was never the outsider sport in our world. It was always the, the primary sport. So my dad would drive me out to, you know, 45 minutes outside D.C. to go see the Maryland Bays in the old uh, American Soccer League or whatever it was called at, at the time. And, and, it, and I thought those guys were, were like World Cup heroes. You know, that was really cool. But then a year or two later, the te- those teams would be gone. And then I fell in love with the Washington Warthogs of the Indoor League. And then they would be gone. And so when DC United showed up in 1996, and I'm really at the point where, you know, I'm, I'm 11, 12 years old. Um, this team has been, been dropped into my city, and um, we are soccer crazy. We've just had the World Cup come through in 94. Uh, I went to every game at RFK. They're going to play at RFK. And my dad says, hey, we're getting, we're getting season tickets. And so right from jump, man, I was, I was in. You know, and, and I think people now look at it and they say, like, whenever there's an expansion team in MLS, you know, and people laugh at like LAFC, like, how come they had a how could they have a supporters group? They've never played a game. If you know, that was me in 1996. I didn't care what kind of product, who the guys were. You you put them in in real jerseys and you put them in a real stadium and you you told me they were pros. I was in. And so I fell in love with DC United and the winning didn't hurt. Right. Um, they're rolling. They're amazing. They're winning titles. and they have these amazing players like Marco Echeverri was doing things I'd never seen anybody live do on a ball. Uh, Jaime Moreno was incredible. Raul Diazarse was, you know, putting the ball in the back of the net. Uh, Ben Olsen, who I've had my battles with since, uh, was my favorite, favorite American player growing up uh, once he joined DC United, even when he was at the University of Virginia. These were my idols. DC United was my team. I mean, um, maybe the Mexican national team and you know, Club America is my team in Mexico, but I, I didn't, I love them, but I didn't grow up going to their games. You know, there's a difference. And I fell in love. I fell in love with DC United. I fell in love with RFK and, and, and everything about it. And not so much MLS, right? I was really a DC United fan and then slightly more and more exposed um, to the rest of the league. And when I got into the media and was kind of local in the Washington area, Here's the reality, John. In a lot of these stations that you get into, people don't care about soccer. They don't know it. And so if, you're the, if you have any knowledge of soccer, you suddenly become the expert in the room. 
And that allowed me to get some opportunities to cover and be around DC United. And then eventually uh, the club said, hey, why don't you do what you're doing for that network and come do it for us? And so I actually, when I went to DC United in 2012 and I left uh, the regional sports network I was at there in Washington, a lot of people told me it was a bad move not to do it. And I just couldn't, the idea of working for my childhood club, like as a romantic, it was just, so, well, where else, you know, what else would I do? Um, and I took the job and I was happy there and I thought I'd do that forever, not forever, but for a long time. Uh, and then, you know, the realities of, of life come along. I get this opportunity to move down to Houston and um, do full-time on-air television for a big-time regional sports network. And frankly, financially, it was just like a, a game changer for me, uh, that job. And it was something that I could not take without being kind of irresponsible to my future. But it, it hurt me to leave DC United. And, um, and especially at that time, it was, a, it was a kind of exciting transitional time for the club. They'd just gotten some new ownership. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of optimism at that time. And so really for me, like, you know, when I speak on DC United, I never will tell people, I'll tell people, sorry, I'll always tell people, take, take it with a grain of salt. Take it, take it from a guy who's been on the inside, who knows probably too much, who's got some biases, uh, and who really freaking cares. And at the end of the day, I don't say anything I say about DC United, certainly not if it's negative, outside of a point of I really, really care. DC United is the thing, you know, that one of the really core things that connects me to my dad. It's one of the really core things that connects me to my one of my best, best friends. Um, his, his old man and my old man got season tickets together in 96. And his old man passed a couple of years ago. And we were like, you know, and, and leaving RFK was super emotional for the both of us uh, because our, we grew up there and our, and our family ties are there. So it is, it is a club and people who, you know, want to have goes at MLS and say it's not even that. It's just a franchise. But for those of us who grew up in it, man, it's real. And um, it really means a lot to us. And, and if there's ever a team I want to see succeed, and not even so much on the field but off it, it's DC United. I want soccer in, in my city to be really healthy, and, and DC United is, is the, key, the key to that. Man, I'm sure that you, you, you know this uh, you know, from, from conducting interviews, but when somebody gives an answer like that, you can go back to so many different points and, and, and then try to ask the next question. Cause you made so many like interesting points and there were, so I also things. talk way too long. <laughs> <laughs> not, not at all. Not at all. That's expected in, in, in this format, but, but you know, the, I, I guess where, where, you know, where the touch point is for me is what you kind of mentioned about your experience being a fan of, of club America from, from a distance and being a fan of, of the Mexican national team from a distance but having DC United in your own backyard was what really helped solidify that relationship with, you know, your local team and hearing the story about you and your dad and your friend and and his dad and, and everything, you know, what comes to mind is, is how many people do not have that opportunity in the United States to form that relationship with a team. Uh, Not necessarily has to be in the first division, but, but, you know, any, any professional, club in in the United States and, and we're kind of robbed of that opportunity here in the United States. I didn't anticipate talking about this, but of but of course it's it's meaningful to me. 
and and I'd be curious to kind of get your your reaction to to what I just said. It's like you know we only have what is it now twenty two or twenty three you know, professional professional teams, and we're kind of just, as a country of three hundred fifty million, we're expected to just gravitate towards those those uh, outlets and form those relationships. But really, that those relationships don't mean anything, you know, to somebody in North Dakota or Nevada or even where I'm from in Central California. It's absolutely right. I mean, I think kind of the best way I can put it is that so much of the United States is still where the example I gave, you know, the D.C. area was, the Maryland, Northern Virginia suburbs were when I was a kid, where you may have a club near you, you may have a team near you, you may have a place where you can get on the Internet, find a game, go pay a ticket and watch. What you don't know is whether that team is going to be around in a couple of years. And I think that when you drop into the, the, the lower tiers of American soccer um, is, a, is a really harsh reality that people who may want to connect to a team don't have the assurances that that team's going to be around. I mean, I, I went through it as a kid. Like, I, I, it's so silly to hear me say this because the Maryland Bays exist. Like, I loved the Maryland freaking Bays. Daryl G, <laughs> their right back, was like a big deal to me. And, and uh, you know, that, and, and, and it's crazy, but that, those are the connections you make, right? Like, the, as a kid, especially, as a kid, I, I, I you know, I am really am a romantic man. I, and I, I, I'm still a kid, really. I, I'm just a, a, a kid who hasn't really grown up. And so when you think about what in this country we need to not necessarily create better players or, or, or you know make sure we qualify for the world cup or win a world cup but just that we have like a, a healthy fandom of the game i think having more places um, where there are more teams that it doesn't matter necessarily at which level you're playing but are there and are there for the long haul you know i think of a place like charleston um, the Charleston Battery have been there for a really long time. And I had a buddy that recently moved there. And so now I kind of go down to visit Charleston quite a bit. And it's a there's a very cool little community around that club. And, and John, at the end of the day, you know, soccer is the excuse, but we're really talking about kind of building communities. And I think that's one of the few examples, unfortunately, um, at the lower tiers of American soccer where you have programs franchises clubs operations that have longevity and there's probably a million different fingers we could point as to why that occurs um and we could probably spend another hour talking about that but <laughs> but i think that i think john that's that's the reality you know and um and yet look there are people who become really intense soccer fans that aren't in mls markets you don't need access to an mls team to become a, a, a um you know a really diehard fan but I do think having that experience of going to the stadium and having those familial ties, right? Like um, when you think about supporters culture and, and fandom in Europe, it's tribal, right? And, and in Latin America, it's very tribal. And because of a lack of history, and then, you know, what we just talked about lack of, in some team cases, longevity, we haven't really had the opportunities for grandparents to pass their, their, team allegiances on to on to their sons and daughters on to their sons and daughters so i say oh well my grandmother rooted for this team so you better bet like that's when i say that's my team that's my team 
and and we just we don't have a lot of that. We we really don't. Yeah, right before right before I called you, actually, I read two articles this morning, and one of them was from Grant Wall, which this is now the second time I've mentioned Grant in like the last month on my podcast, which is not very normal. Um, and the other one was from was from Napoon, and and he covers a lot of the the lower division yep. stuff. And I, I don't does a don't great really, job, great job. Yeah, and and I and I well, actually, I take that back. What I read was actually written by Bo Durr the um another and Napoon, dc guy yeah yeah, yeah, I love Bo. yeah. and and, and napoon linked to to one of Bo's um articles and it happened to be about the longevity of lower division soccer clubs and, and i think it was npsl specifically saying that you know they average about two years before they kind of fizzle out and then start mm. either a rebrand or a relocation or take a hiatus or just die and and there was an interesting line in the in in Bo's article saying, you know, an option a lot of times for those teams is to self relegate, and and when I read that, like, my my jaw kind of just dropped. I was like, what? Like, you know, we're we're expecting these teams in order to to better themselves to to relegate themselves, when really I think what would be you know, more beneficial would be to give them an opportunity to build for, to, to, to climb the ladder instead of thinking like, Oh, well, you know, we've reached our limit here. We can't really, you know, do anything else besides bang our heads up against the wall at this point. So let's go down a level and, and figure some stuff out like that. That was just a jaw dropping line to me when I read that. And, and it was fresh in my mind when, when, uh, when I called you and, and to hear you kind of talk about that longevity too, it's like, all right, well, you know, maybe, maybe this is a conversation that, that we should be having, uh, you know, a little bit more often. It's, it's the stark reality, right? And I think so much of that comes down to the investors, the people who, um, you know, who, who take the gamble, man, because investing in American soccer I think in a lot of ways, unless you're led into the, you know, to the elite of the elite, it's a pretty big gamble still. Yep. And, um, and, and maybe it's not a, you know, if you're, if you're somebody with a significant source of resources, um, maybe it's not a gamble, maybe losing 10 million a year or 20 million a year doesn't, doesn't affect your bottom line or your lifestyle, but people don't like to lose money, you know, whether, whether they can afford to do it or not. I, I think it, for the most part, um, People don't like the idea, and certainly not the people who have accrued a lot of it enough to own a team or support a team, don't like the idea uh, of losing money. And so when we have the system that we have and you know, maybe you're not so incentivized to – there's nowhere for you to go but where you are, um, you know, there, we zap some of that incentivization to get, get – investors who are a ambitious um and b maybe capable of sticking around for the long haul uh, because that's really what you need man there was a time you just go back to mls history there was a time when like every team in the league they, they were owned by two people you know like it having the, the dearth of american soccer investors was very real not all that long ago now everybody's popping out of the woodwork and wants to get get in on 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 the you know air quote gold rush yeah. But, you know, but let's let's be honest here. I mean, I think I think there's you know, there's something to be said for for the lack of of opportunities and maybe access even for those who should have access, which is the people with the money, the, the, the people who might 
might want to really invest in the game. If you if you look, if you're sealing, if I, I'll, I'll, I'll pull back the curtain. My my buddy calls me the other day, right? And he's he's a freaking idea guy. This guy's got three kids. Um, he's a kid. I, a guy I was telling you about DC United. Um, he's got three kids. Uh, he works for the government. He's a lawyer. He, he literally is so busy. He calls me. He's like, hey, we should start up an NPSL team. I'm like, oh my god, dude! You know how much stuff we got going on right now? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? He's like, well, you know, let's let's do this. And I think, you know, like maybe maybe that idea would have got off the ground if if we would have, you know, if and who knows? Maybe we'll do it in ten or twenty years or whatever, because um, we have kind of some cool ideas around it. But you know, there there are probably a, a million people doing that, saying like, well, hey, I, I know enough people, and you know, he he actually, I think called the league and did the whole like expansion packet and he had the numbers he was like look here's here's what we would need to get through basically two years and you know unfortunately that's how we were thinking and i'm I'm probably assuming that's how a lot of folks think you know and and if you get through two years that's okay but if you've gotten through two years and you haven't gone anywhere or there's no opportunity to funnel more in then you're just looking at kind of re-upping that initial investment and surviving for another two years. And uh, I think there's a lot of people with the ideas to lead and own, and maybe some people even with the money. Um, but, you know, if, if you're going to start something, I think you want it to last. And unfortunately, right now, um, there's just no guarantee. You know, there's no guarantee that, A, your team's going to last. And in some cases... There's no, there's no guarantee the league that you're buying into is going to last. Yeah, that's a scary thought, man. It's a, it's a super scary thought, actually. Um, I, one thing I, that just popped into my head is, is we didn't set a time uh, for, for the length of our, of our call. So I'm, I'm hoping we can maybe get 10 more minutes, and I want to change gears and, and talk to you about one more thing that's on my mind. Joe, you got, John, you got all the time you want, man. I, I'm <laughs> off today, so no, no worries. Perfect. Well, I don't want to make you work too hard on your day off. You should. You nah, should, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> I gotta go in and I'm, I, I say day off. I'm going in to do a podcast with uh, Hercules Gomez in a little bit, so nice. it's it's a half day off. Well, that's that's actually a good transition because because Herc is is somebody uh, that's also been on this podcast, but somebody that I've I've texted back and forth with over the course of you know the last year or so about um, a lot of the issues revolving around. Mexican American players and, and players that you know have the the dual eligibility and and players making decisions to go here or there and and this is when you know again my ears really start to perk up when when this topic comes up and you decide to cover it because there again there's a little bit of authenticity and you cover it not a little bit of authenticity there's authenticity there and you cover it in a way that really nobody else does and when I say nobody else, I, I'm I'm referring to nobody else in in the mainstream. So, you know, other people on ESPN, Sports Illustrated, Fox, like it 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 almost seems like a taboo subject. And for whatever reason, you dive in head first whenever it comes up. So, uh, I I want to, I and I think if if yeah, I I texted the other day and and mentioned that I wanted to talk about like how you've kind of created this. Uh, this niche for yourself to to operate in as this guy that that touches on topics that nobody else will. So, I I guess you know if I can get to a question is is how have you been able to to create that niche for yourself where where you can talk about topics that are a little edgy like 
dual citizen players? Sorry, that was a weird way to ask that question. <laughs> no, I, it's 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 fine. So first of all, like let's look back at my work history, right? Um, from 2009 to 2012, I worked at a regional sports network that was the broadcast partner of DC United. So at that point, um, not necessarily working for the team, but I'm working with the team and I'm covering the team and I'm starting to have conversations with people and learn the inner workings of the system. And then I go to work actually for DC United and I really see the inner workings. And then I go to Houston and again, I'm working for a broadcast partner. So I, I get to hear and know a lot of stuff, but here's the thing when you work for a team or for a broadcast partner, you oftentimes can't say what you know, but because you can't say what you know, and people know that you can't say what you know, people, (laughs) people talk to you and people tell you things and you start to understand all of these things. And on spe- so that's that's my experience. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to understand. I know all this stuff. I have all these people who talk to me, but I don't break news. I don't break news. And because of that, I maybe know too much. So when I come to ESPN now, all of those reasons not to talk. And look, at ESPN, we have our own broadcast partnerships and maybe our own reasons not to talk. And maybe I've gotten in trouble over some of those reasons. But um, if we're being honest, right, if we're being honest, um, but as a result of of that, I, the e, it's really I have to I have to acknowledge my employer here. It's the ESPN platform that allows me in some ways the independence um, and the status, right, because the status of ESPN is a little bit beyond not beyond reproach, That's but um it's 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 always like a bully pulpit almost, right? You can say things at ESPN, and I'm not going to get into like DC United can't call CSN Washington and say fire this guy. It's it's not that direct of a line, you know. Um, I can criticize, and 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 I can, and I have that that freedom. Now here's the other thing, John. I'm not a journalist. I'm not a beat reporter in that way. I might have some like journalistic tendencies, but I don't, I'm not on the ground. I'm not on the beat every day. And those guys live in a total, and, and those guys and girls, I should say, live in a totally different reality uh, because the American soccer landscape from a media perspective, uh, and certainly when you deal with the teams, it's very insulated. And so, sure. If you're a beat reporter, you know a lot. But if you go out and criticize and do this and 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 hammer folks, well, you're going to get your access taken away. Um, there's going to be repercussions for that, very real repercussions for you and what you do. My role here, although sometimes I am on the field, sideline reporting for a broadcaster or what what have you, or I am being a reporter or serving in the reporter role for ESPN FC. Um, Really, for the most part, man, I have a little bit of distance, but I also have the knowledge of having seen what I've seen through my career and now a place where I'm a little bit, not completely, but slightly more untethered. And I can when topics pop up, there's no there's sometimes no reason for me not to say what I know, not to call a spade a spade, 
not to, hey, let's be honest about this. Um, and I think too much in American soccer, the people who know have been unwilling or unable to say what's really happening. Um, and so for a lot of reasons, I've come into this spot at this time. Listen, what happened in Cuba uh, last October had a lot to do with that. When the U.S. failed to qualify, it really opened, I think, some eyes within the media to say, hey, uh, we can't just pat everybody on the back anymore because A, it doesn't work, and B, it's boring. It's not good content. Um, an antagonistic relationship in many ways makes for the best content. And at the end of the day, John, like uh, we're content makers. We, we want people to consume what we're doing. And so if, if we just sit here and, and tell feature stories uh, and, and we just applaud the teams that have sellouts and that's all that we talk about, um, we're not really doing justice to the full story, right? Like, I, and I'll call us out here a little bit, like ESPN. Like if you look at where we go to broadcast MLS games, we don't go all over, right? Like we go to, we're in the Portlands, we're in the Seattles, we're in the Kansas City. Like we go to the prime spots. Um, we don't go to Houston very often. We were there for the Open Cup final, but that was more by chance than by choice, right? So we don't, we're not always in the places that are maybe dragging behind, but I do think that those places still deserve to be talked about. Those challenges still need to be talked about. And, and, the opportunity to do that uh, at ESPN is is very real. And then the other part of it is, because you touched on it, is one, the, the Mexican-American discussions specifically and, and kind of how U.S. soccer and, and the, the incumbent power that is U.S. soccer accesses the broader, like, Latino demographic here in the United States. I mean, that's just who I am. Like, that, that was my life growing up. I would, but I also was in the U.S. soccer world. Because my my parents lived in the burbs, so I, I I both grew up playing pickup with Hispanic kids who didn't have access to the system, and yet I was also in the system. So I grew up a part of the system, uh, but I also grew up with a little bit of the perspective of the outsider. So all of that experience, right, has created kind of a persona, if you will, or or, or a, a a collection of ideas that now put to ESPN, which is a little bit more independent than, your, than where I have been in the past, um, opens me up to, to, to talk about more things. But not all things, John, because the reality is like, I still get in trouble. You know, I, I still, there are still times when my bosses get called and then I get called and you know, that, that stuff still happens. <laughs> um, and, and that's just a reality of working in, in the American soccer landscape, man. We're dealing with a lot of folks that are not a thin skin. Yeah, that's that's true. And I think from an outsider looking in, and, and I don't think that it it's a unique view to just me, but you know, during the presidential election and seeing like who got spots on what media platforms and whatnot, I think when when people see a Kathy Carter get like a feature spot on an, on an ESPN show and nobody else gets that spot. Or I think it took quite a while for somebody else to, to get another interview on ESPN. People are thinking like, Oh, well ESPN just, you know, part of the problem. But I think if you look at the, at the bigger, you know, body of work, you know, maybe from guys like you and Herc and Max and, and some other people that are on there, 
Yeah, Jeff Carlisle, you got to mention him. I think he did, you know, a really good job reporting on that on that specific election. Yeah. So so I think when you when you step back and you look at that, it's like, well, you know, was that ESPN being, you know, part of the problem and and people can read into that however they want. But uh, or or was that somebody kind of just utilizing a contact? And so I've kind of just settled on on utilizing a contact. And and that's, you know, one of the benefits, I guess, of of being on the inside. Right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, I. I think I think there's there was probably some fair criticisms of our election coverage. Um, you know, I, I I I think when I got on the ground in Orlando, I think we did a pretty good job. And then you know, in the aftermath on the Max and Herc podcast, trying to break it down and um, in the way that we saw, you know, I, at least for me, the way that I saw it, you know, and I kind of uh, you know just being there, being literally in the in the bowels of the beast um in this moment for me was a real eye-opener you know kind of turning over the rock and seeing all the worms being like oh this is how it operates oh this (laughs) this this these are the people choosing this and and this is what the group looks like and wow this is you know this is different than what i expected and you know maybe my expectations were, were way off or or i don't even know if i went into that really with expectations it was such a such a a wild time but yeah you know i mean we got you know, and, and people are conspiracy theorists too, right? Like it 100%. just happened when, when I think when Kathy went on the show, she was interviewed by Alexis, Alexis Nunez. And people were like, and look, Alexis is, Alexis is like wheelhouse is European football. It's not necessarily MLS. Um, she was given that assignment. I thought she did a good job, but maybe she didn't have the background as I wouldn't, if I was interviewing Jose Mourinho that she would have, and she's done, she's interviewed Jose Mourinho and gotten great freaking quotes out of him. Um, so uh, please do not take this as a shot at Alexis, but people were like, Oh, here's, they, they just put Kathy Carter on with Alexis. And it was, you know, a little bit more of a, a, you know, collegial friendly interview. And then when Eric came on, it was Sebastian. And Sebastian was a little bit more forceful with Eric and was a little bit more direct. That's, it was just the day that I was in, you know, like it wasn't that, that nobody, nobody said, Hey, we're having one all on you. No, I was up that week and I was the guy. So that's what it was. And Alexis, and I wasn't there when Kathy Carter showed up. So it, Alexis was the one that was there. Like there's not all these, like, at least to my knowledge, um, there's not some big conspiracy down to that level. Uh, what I do think, what I will say happened is I don't think, I don't want to say we, but I'll, I will say we, because I'll, I'll include myself in this to protect myself. I don't know that we realized um, the, the how many people were interested in that election. And, and maybe, maybe there weren't that many, you know what I mean? Like I, I still, I don't know. I still, I don't know how many people care or know who the president of us soccer is like, in on Twitter, everybody knows who Carlos Cordero is. But when I go play pickup, nobody knows who he is. Nobody knows who Sunil Gulati is. Like no, nobody knows who these people are. So I think ESPN FC is a place where we focus so much on the things that people care about. We really didn't know if that election was going to register with enough folks to make to put it in the category of things that we covered, and then. Kind of late, I think we realized, oh, th- this is big and we got to get on this. And I think because we got to it late, it may have looked like certain people got certain preferential treatment over others. And I think we got 
I think we got almost everybody in. Maybe Carlos was the only one we actually didn't get in studio. Um, or at least onto some, you know, in some platform on ESPN of, of the candidates. I, I feel like we got most of them in. Maybe, maybe not Hope. Maybe I think I did an interview with Hope in Orlando, but I don't think we had dining before um, with her. So I, I think, you know, some, sometimes in the media, it's we're, we're humans, like we're fallible. And, and maybe we made a miscalculation there in, in having a plan and, and being ahead of it and, and making sure everybody had exactly the same amount of minutes and the same amount of coverage because it was an election and you should probably follow the same guidelines that we do in other elections. Uh, but I think that when we got on the ground, we spoke about it in an authentic way. And I hope that that's what people took away from that coverage, because as much as it was me explaining what I'd seen to you, it was me explaining what I'd just seen to myself, because it was the first time I'd ever seen it. And for a lot of people covering it, it was the first time any of us had ever seen it. We'd never seen a contested election. We'd certainly never covered it. Um, and so it was a really unique moment in American soccer and one that I think had to be covered um, very honestly, very, very honestly, we, we had to say who was connected to what and what that connection meant. And, and some of those conversations I'm sure were uncomfortable, um, for some of my bosses because we were edging up against some relationships that, that, that are important to, to our network. Yeah. It's the, the interconnectedness I've learned is, um, is a fascinating story in itself, I guess is, is one way to put it. Um, well, you've, and, you've heard me and Herc talk about the old boys network, right? Yeah, and and you, yeah. you, you look at the, even just, you look at, um, no, this is like nine months ago or actually, no, I think this was right after Cuba. You know, I was like, I was in my conspiracy mode. Like what, where are the dots <laughs> connected? Like what the hell happened here? Um, and I remember I was on us soccer's website and I was going through the resumes of all the, the coaches from Bruce arena, all the way down to like U15 boys national team coach. And in not every job, but in, in almost all of them, there was a very common thread. Between 1985 and 1995, you coached or played in the Atlantic Coast Conference of men's college soccer. And I thought, we got a country of 330 million people. We got people who know soccer streaming into this country on a daily basis. And you're telling me that the fountain of knowledge of all soccer in this country, right? The people who are coaching our national teams all just happen to be at an ACC school over a decade span. No, it's an old boys network. And the point I'm making there, John, because I'm not cut you off, is that that old boys network, it's not just in the coaches, right? It's in a lot of what we see in U.S. soccer. It's a very, very insulated group. And I think now, especially with the, again, with the failure to qualify, now everybody's turning at that insulated group and saying, why are you, why are you insulated? Is, you, is the fact that you're insulated the reason we're having these issues? No, it's, it's, it's a very interesting topic and something I've, I've spoken. Actually, I, I, I went and got coffee with Bob Bradley. Uh, it must have been a year and a half or two years ago. And I talked to him about this issue specifically. Like, Bob, like there is a circle of people, and, and it's very hard to break into that circle of people. And he, and he you know, pushed back against me saying, John, there's no, there's no circle of people. I'm like, there absolutely is. And, and when, you, when you look at uh, you know, who's coached 
the national teams, who's coached in MLS, and then you know how that has spawned the next generation of coaches and players, and, and so on. It, it you can draw all the you can draw out the spider web with with all that, but like you mentioned, it goes into other other as, aspects too. And so a lot of people don't know that you know when Bob was coaching at Princeton, who who was one of his understudies, not on the field, but Grant Wall was in his office, you know, every week learning uh, learning uh, how to be a soccer reporter learning how to be a reporter in general and so a lot of people don't realize that and then you know fast forward 20 25 30 years and grant is now uh you know the go-to guy for for soccer reporting in the united states and bob is you know one of the most respected coaches in the united states okay you know that makes sense and then you know when those two circles overlap you know in the media and on on the field world not to say that they purposely do it, but they they do intersect. You know, then you can start to draw your your spider web again. And and I I I don't want to read too much into those into those things. I don't want to get you know people calling me a, a tinfoil or whatever. Um, but I, but I do think that that there is a lot of substance there. Yeah, and the inter interconnectivity, like you say, it it exists. Uh, you know, in the media circles, it exists in the people that run the federation. And you know, one of my my Big issues uh, with the federation when we talked about the Jonathan Gonzalez stuff and all that, and then and, and even now, is you know the idea of representation, and it doesn't necessarily have to be like a, you know when we talk about like a, a closed network, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be like oh well, everybody we all know each other and that's why it's closed. Oftentimes it's just well we pick people because we do this all the time as human beings. We gravitate towards people in a lot of cases who are like us. Yep. And so if everybody in the room is like you and the only people you're letting into the circle are kind of like you and kind of agree with you, then you may have a bigger circle, but you don't have a bigger idea, you know? And I think, I think what's, what's happened there is we, we just have so many people at the decision-making levels that come from the same world. And that world, and, and this is the point, John. That world, that suburban ACC soccer into the national team program world is not representative of what American soccer fully is. That is not who plays soccer, consumes soccer, buys tickets, watches soccer in this country. There is, they are a part of it, but they are not it. Um, and if you look at who consumes soccer in this country uh, more than anybody else, who really is your most valuable demographic in terms of making business in this sport, it's not that world. It's not the suburbs. It is not. And if we limit ourselves to that, then we're always going to have a U.S. men's national team playing in carry and not in a 70,000 seat NFL stadium. Dude, you were like yelling at me there for a second. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. Dude. Yeah. I, again, there, there's the authentic, authenticity kind of shining through and, and, and that's why I like the, you know, the, the podcast format, I guess. And especially the, Oh yeah, it's the, the best. It's the yeah. best, man. Because we always talk about this, like, you know, when that, when the, when we're talking about all the, you know, when, the Gonzalez thing went down and, and then the reaction to it and, and all that. And that was a, you know, a big, big story early in the year. Um, I had so many people at ESPN, I have to say this, man, my bosses. And I thought I was going to, you know, and, and I was, we were getting a lot of heat from a lot of different sides on that. 
um, people angry at how we were coming to this and what we were saying and things we were implying. And, and, you know, I, I'll give Hurt credit, man. He took a lot of it and, and he, you know, look, it's his, it's his experience. It's my experience. Um, you guys can think, you know, what you guys think and that's fine, but I, I can only speak to my experience. I have to say a lot of our bosses at ESPN pulled me into, I, I got pulled into a couple offices and they said, Hey, this is an important topic. And if you need a bigger platform than a, than a podcast, you need something else like let we'll do it. Let's do it. And it's kind of been shelved and it, not shelved, but, but put on ice for a little bit because you have to figure out how to do it. But it's not something you can address in a halftime segment. Really? This isn't something you can talk about on, on ESPN FC in a four and a half minute made for television segment. These are ideas, conversations that are rough around the edges and that has to be felt out in, in, in that podcast format which is great. Unfortunately, um, I feel like, you know, it's not, it's not, it's a drip. It's not necessarily the fire hose that television can be. And so when you're on the Max and Herc podcast, there's a great listenership, but it's not, it is not what it would, we can't take that message or we haven't figured out yet maybe how to get that message into a, a, a more broad platform. But I'll tell you, it's, it's, not from lack of support, it's just for lack of how do we how do we condense this into a into a television space when the podcast space is so wide open and tailor made for it? Well, that's the reason why I've I've created a little niche for myself in the podcast world because I, I feel like nobody when I started the show, like three and a half, four oh man, I think four four and a half years ago now, you know, nobody was doing this type of a of conversation in the podcast world. And, and I was fortunate to kind of get in a little bit before a, a lot of other people kind of started, started the flock here. And, uh, it's, it's been kind of a, a blessing now to be able to have conversations with guys like you and guys like Herc and, and the laundry list of other people that I probably have no business talking to, but, um, but it, it's been, it's been fun to kind of explore this space and, uh, I want to make sure that that people, uh, you know, go check out your guys' show too. So I, I really want you to to kind of talk about where people can find you, whether that's you know on air or sorry on on the TV or or on a podcast. And then I want to ask one last question once uh once you kind of get through that. Yeah, I mean, I got to check my schedule to see where I am. You know? <laughs> it's a little bit crazy, no, but um. I'll be on ESPN FC the rest of, uh, you know, for the next, I think, five, six days because I'm up here in Connecticut. I live in D.C. I actually am based in Washington uh, still. And after that, we kind of drop into, well, I'll be covering the USA-Peru match in Hartford because uh, it's right here down the road. And then after that, we kind of drop into MLS playoff mode. So we'll be hopping around from playoff spot to playoff spot. And the last few weeks of the regular season, we've got some pretty – good coverage plans um, for ESPN. I know on Saturday, the 21st, we've got a double header and I believe it's Alejandro Moreno and I will be in studio kind of doing the, the wraparound coverage around it, which is not something we always do. So um, we'll be there. I was on the Max and Herc podcast this week where we talked a lot about Matias Almeida joining San Jose earthquakes, obviously uh, one of the big stories in, in American soccer. And, and, you know, we talk about, diversity, new ideas, um, new coaches. I think in, in a lot of ways you can pat San Jose on the back because they've brought a new and important voice into the American soccer landscape. We're doing an edition of two on three, our kind of 
Mexican national team in English specific podcast that we really launched over the World Cup. Herc and I will do that later today. So I'm everywhere, man. I, uh, I will be on your TVs annoying you um, for the rest of 2018. <laughs> Don't worry about it. That's awesome. I like the way you put that. <laughs> um, yeah, so so the question I end all of my interviews with is is what do people need to know? And and I'll give you a second to think about that while I kind of explain why I, why I asked that. And and everybody kind of has a unique perspective and and you you know being raised in the era of MLS uh you know just starting, uh, being dropped into your community, being a Mexican American, being a, a reporter uh, that, that covers the game inside and out, uh, being somebody that, that, ha- that understands the inner workings now of, of the league itself. And then also American soccer to, to, you know, uh, to an extent. And, and then also just, just everything that you've, all the knowledge you've accumulated over the years. And so I, I'm always curious to, to find out, you know, what you think, people need to know when it comes to to soccer in this in this country the one word that i've already used here but that i'll i'll use again because i can't use it enough is representation and that's what i'll give you on the from kind of the perspective of mexican-american i'll give you another thing you need to know from the media perspective but um you know there was these uh forget which one of the U.S. soccer folks it was. I wish I had it in front of me. Nico Romain or, or one of the other guys. You know, there was the Soccer America article where uh, the Federation drew a lot of criticism because the quotes um, seemed to imply that basically, you know, Hispanic folks maybe weren't interested in coaching. Um, I, I really don't think that's what they meant to say, but uh, I can absolutely see why, why people took it that way. Um, and, and I know that 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 was what a lot of people picked out of, of that article. One thing that I picked out of that article was the fact that U.S. soccer um, could not answer the question, what are your demographics in your coaches? And it reminded me, when I was covering the USSF presidential election, I also asked U.S. soccer, of the voting delegates, what's your demographic breakdown? And they couldn't tell me. So the question then becomes, if you honestly care about your demographics, or how can you honestly claim to care about demographics and representation if you're not even tracking it? And I think when we talk about the insulated nature of kind of the American soccer, not but American soccer is all of us, but the American soccer power bubble, um, we really must continue to aggressively ask, demand, however you want to word it, representation, because we're far behind. And I do think when you ring that bell and you ring it loud enough, loud enough, loud enough, um, people get heard. But there's rep- there's two types of representation. There's a representation that is, let's put a bunch of, for instance, um, minority candidates onto a committee and have them come up with some ideas that will then go to somebody else who are not minority to make the decisions. That's not representation. What I want to see is people from outside the bubble who represent the American soccer that I see um, given direct 
positions of power if they're qualified, right? And I think there are a lot of people who are qualified. And that doesn't necessarily mean like coaches. I'm, I'm not even talk, I'm talking off the field stuff. I'm talking media relations. Um, you know, those types of roles uh, need to be more representative um, because unfortunately, man, we just don't have it. I grew up in the burbs. So I got to play on the best, and I'm air quoting this, best club teams in my area. I won state cup. I won high school championships. And in almost all of those games, right, and at the highest levels that I played of, of kind of competitive youth soccer, I was the only Hispanic kid on the field. John, I played Division three college soccer. I, I'm an okay player. But I wasn't the best Latino kid in the D.C. area. And I know that because I played against them because I played pickup. But I was the one that had the access. That's not good enough. You know, that's 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 not good enough. That cannot be. So we have representation issues from, you know, soccer house in Chicago down to your local club team. I mean, that is a that that means it's not one, it's not small, right? It's everywhere we have these representation issues. We have these hurdles that, for whatever reason, finances from everything from finances to just over racism keep people out, and that's not good enough. The other thing I'd say that people need to know from a media perspective is this: um, the media is not all one thing, right? We're not a monolith. Like we're, we're not just one big blob. Um, we all come from different places. We all have different outlets and we all have different relationships. Um, but what media members in, in this country deal with in terms of retaliation from the powers that be, um, is crap. It's really crap. I've had something in the last month. And to be honest, you know, we, we, you asked me to do this interview a little while ago. Um, and, and I kind of asked you to push it back and that's because at the time, um, I was dealing with a lot of, well, I was, I was very busy traveling, but I was also dealing with a lot of issues that have to do with this as a media person. When you speak out, um, they don't call you, they call your boss, right? They don't, they don't say, Hey, uh, you might've got this wrong. They call your boss. And I've had in this case, and I can say this, I have had people fabricate stuff to my bosses about me and make accusations of me. Now, thank God my bosses know what's up and held their ground. But that's the reality that media. So when you when you want to go and hack at a media member and say, oh, they're they're this or they're that. Know that every time we stick our neck out a little bit, we're paying for it on the back end. Sometimes, sometimes with our jobs, sometimes with access, sometimes in other ways. But the retaliatory nature is very real. And I, I hope people know that. And someday, maybe on the Max and Herc podcast, maybe on your podcast, I'm going to tell all, I'm going to tell, I'm going to spill it all and I'm going to name names. But some of the stuff that goes on, some of the thin skinned kind of petty backstabbing stuff that goes on from the people in power when somebody says something they don't like about them is ridiculous. And here's what's happening. And this is a this is a shot across the bow to those people. Ever since Cuba, the media is different. I'm not going to say all of us, but some of us, it's different. And we know now 
that you have to address things. And I always go back to what I see when I, and you know, I don't watch ESPN as much as I watch ESPN Deportes because they cover, you know, Mexican soccer and soccer in general, which is, you know, more what I want. And the guys on Football Picante will go on the show and accuse the Federation of Crimes. And the Federation president will be on the show the next day yelling at him and, and saying no and this and that. <laughs> but A, A, it's an honest discourse or it's a, it's a direct discourse. Honest might be a little too friendly. Um, but B, it's great show. And it makes people interested in what we're talking about, right? And so what, what I think so many of the power brokers for so long, because they were so insecure about what soccer was or wasn't in this country, have said only positive coverage, only positive coverage, only positive coverage. And now that the knives are out, and that they, in many ways, have failed, um, because look at where we are. You know, we missed the World Cup this summer. There is almost like, what? A, a clutching of the pearls every time something is criticized. And straightforward, kind of featurey, puff, patting people on the back. Look, the soccer game is sold out. What a hooray. That's not going to get us anywhere. And you know what? It's boring as hell. Watch Football Picante. You don't even have to speak Spanish to be excited about it. You have guys yelling at each other and throwing stuff at each other and old personal gripes are coming up. But it is really entertaining so entertaining content. And, you know, you, you, you named a couple people in this podcast, Herc, and you named Bob Bradley. One of the best episodes of the Max and Herc was the Bob Bradley interview. And Bob and, and, and Herc are going at it. But it's fair. It's honest. It's pretty respectful. And it's amazing content and it's insightful content. And we need more of that. We need the power brokers that be to stop being so thin skinned. I'm not saying you got to take all the abuse, but I'm saying if you want the power, you got to be able to handle the heat in the kitchen. And right now there's so many people in positions of power who can't handle it. I 100% agree. I also want to let you know that was a 10 minute answer. Oh shoot! Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good, man. No, and again, it it just speaks to the authenticity. You could you could hear yourself kind of going through, and 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 you hit a point, and then you're like, well, you know, this is attached to that point, so I need to explain this, and well, I need to explain this too, and and people, uh, I I I know for a fact that people value that insider behind the curtain, uh, type of type of access that you just gave us. Because that's what we we've been wanting for quite a long time, and and you know, as fans of the sport, and I can speak for myself, especially, I don't care about the sellouts. I don't care about the 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 tifos and and, and those types of things. That that to me is is not why I tune in. I t I tune in for for other reasons, and and again, it just goes back to why I wanted to interview you, uh, and, and why I started reaching out a couple months ago. Is, is I, I'm I'm a fan of the authenticity that that you provide. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. It's probably going to get me my ass fired one day, but uh, I, I, I appreciate that you appreciate it. Yeah, one hundred percent. I'll come be your I'll come be your assistant ref when they fire me. Hey, well, <laughs> or your security, or your or your security, maybe. Maybe you need security more than you need ARs. I I saw your tweet about the parents putting hands on you, dude. It's ridiculous. That's a that's that's got to be a whole nother. A series of podcasts for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. I I ref the. When I was, I think, 15, somebody asked me to, to ref 
his under 10 boys against an under 12 girls match. I wanted to go to the car at halftime and cry. It was a preseason scrimmage. And the parents were just like crushing me. And <laughs> I was like, I will never do this again. Never. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a thankless job, literally, and, and doesn't pay well at all. So, Right. Um, all right, dude. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut it there. Awesome, John, man. Thanks for having me. Right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast, and a big, huge thank you to my guest on today's episode, Sebastian Salazar. If you would like to connect with Sebastian or find out uh, what else he's up to, I've provided some links in the write-up to this podcast available on 343coaching.com, and if you go there, you can click around, you can find that type of stuff, or more importantly, you can find out how to support and help fund this podcast. And I'm talking specifically about the coaching education programs that we offer on 343coaching.com. We offer a premium program, which is an all-access behind-the-stage look at what went into the making of some of this country's best players by one of this country's best coaches. And if you aren't sure if you want access to that type of stuff, we have a little bit of a teaser for you. So we have a free course that we actually highly recommend starting with if you are brand new to us. And to give you a little bit of insight to what that experience might be like, here is Tom Byer to talk about his experience with our free course. And I can tell you, after someone who's done a lot of coaches' education, both as a student as an instructor, that you will learn more by watching one or two of their videos that you might learn on any full-time course. Because the, the one thing that I like about what they're presenting is, again, it's simplicity, man. It's very simple. It's not a lot of, you know, complicated words. It makes sense. And it goes right directly to the heart of, of, of the game on, on, on how, to, how to develop, um, not just, you know, individual players, but develop teams as well. Once again, you can find all that information at 343coaching.com. All right, we will catch you guys next time here on the 343 Podcast. Thank you for listening.